Greetings, everyone. Cameron Renee has arrived. John and Robin Kreider have a healthy baby girl. She was born yesterday at 10 a.m. and weighed in at 8 pounds, 10 ounces. She's 21 inches long. Mom and baby are doing fine. I don't know about that. I told you to get a tour that had been a but he wasn't. She did all the work, but, well, most of it. So that's a, a happy announcement. After you wait nine months or something, you come to fruition to be successful. That's beautiful. I wanted to say a few words about Purim. No, we're not going Jewish in the sense of Judaism and paganism by any means, but I gave a sermon a few weeks back uh, about the book of Esther, and we tied it in with the end-time church and how the parallels are so close between what happened then and what is happening and is about to happen now in terms of prophecy. <laughs> and the persecution of the church which is to come. Uh, those people were delivered physically that day, and we will be delivered physically and spiritually in this day. So I think there is a great deal to rejoice over. Uh, no, we have not been fully delivered yet. On the other hand, our deliverance has started. Just being called of God and being given his truth is a beginning to deliverance. And we all have the opportunity to be delivered from everything that is about to happen as a result of the access to the knowledge that we have. What we do about it is critical to the process. Will we be awake and alert and obedient and please God in our lives to the point whether or not we have sinned in our lives, for we all have, we would be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming and to be delivered. So that deliverance is near, as we see things happening in the world that indicate worldwide turmoil and war is about to break out very soon, I think. We have the knowledge that can deliver us from that. We pay attention to it and follow through on it. So, since Purim is in the Bible, it's not a concoction of Judaism or paganism. I think that perhaps they have taken it to areas that are not correct. The Jews observe Purim with uh, absolute drunkenness in many cases, and that is condoned under those circumstances. Uh, I don't see any justification for that anywhere in the Bible. doesn't mean we can't have alcohol. It doesn't mean we cannot uh, be joyous, have a festive time. But this is the first time that we have done it. I did not want to adopt the Jewish approach to it, uh, lest we get sidetracked into some wrong areas. So we're approaching it with uh, a festivity or a festive attitude in terms of meals and fellowship and some games and various things that we want to have, singing and reading of the book and further explanation of it here. I know.
know those of you who are out scattered across the land and around the world, for that matter, um, may be pretty much on your own. All be together. I hope that someday soon we shall all be together, and even more coming. But that day has not yet arrived. So if you're not here to join in the festivities with a larger group of people, I guess you'll just have to just be joyous alone. And I can't tell you necessarily how to go about that. You just have to do the best you can under the circumstances. But I think to some degree, not only just with conversion and knowledge of God's way, I think that having provided this place for a gathering to begin, God is showing us a way to deliverance. And I think that coming here, we have been at least partially delivered. I know not in the way, not in the way that the scriptures indicate it will turn out once it is said and done. But I believe that that is already starting. We have been able to get away from this world more than we were. We've been able to get off to ourselves and apart from the world. Not completely yet. That will come. But we certainly have been able to separate pretty much physically, and I hope that we are emotionally and spiritually separating ourselves from this world and its fellowship, because the Bible is very clear the light and darkness cannot coexist. We cannot have fellowship with the world and with God. Very clear in Scripture. So if we are being given an opportunity to separate from the world, or at least to start in that direction, then I think that our deliverance has begun. First, conversion, and now even physically starting. Whether it goes on through or not, depends a great deal up to us, because this is not the place of safety. The gathering place, which I think will increase in time if we do our part, and ultimately we could go to the place if we're accounting for it at that time. Being here does not guarantee that by any means. Because all have to be accounted for by God, or for some reason they won't get there, even though they might wish to. It comes down to our spiritual relationship between us and God when he makes the final cut. All right, to begin Purim, Monday night, um, we'll have a meal at 7 o'clock. They ask that you have the food here by 6.30 Monday evening. The menu includes roast beef, prime rib, ribeye, turkey, mashed potatoes, gravy, mixed vegetables, green beans, salad bar, coffee, tea, wine, punch, limited mixed drinks. If that would be alcohol, I'm sure they mean by that or limited. I have not seen too many people overdue on our issues. And homemade desserts. Sounds good to me. The church is providing the need for this. Cal's here providing, I think, pretty much the rest of it. Well, right, the church is providing the wine, too. So uh, the wine and the meat we'll take care of, and the rest is up to you. But we'll begin here at 7 o'clock, and let's, let's be on time, because the type of meal we're having is the kind that's best not to sit too long. Uh, when you start talking about ribeye and 
uh, prime rib, and so on, good to eat it while it's hot. Just been cooked as much as possible. So we'll have a banquet right here. I think all of you got this in your box. I don't need to read the whole thing then. Most of you have it. If you don't have a copy of this, I think Charlotte would be the one to see. It gives the schedule of events. Well, maybe to say just this much about it in terms of those people who are out there who aren't here and didn't receive one. Uh, what we're going to do here, we're going to have a banquet Monday night. And uh, then Tuesday evening, again at 7, we'll have a, a meal with an Italian fame. Roman, is that uh, what we need? Yeah, that's fine as far as food. Uh, spaghetti, lasagna, pizza, and so on. A little more casual evening. Uh, entertainment will be taped, and we'll have some live music, perhaps to sing along. Uh, Wednesday, we plan a day in the outdoors. Baseball, volleyball, softball, base, volleyball, horseshoes, other activities, sit and enjoy fellowship. Uh, that is, it's not snowing by then. Uh, I think it starts supposed to start according to weather. We're clearing about Sunday. I uh, appreciate the moisture we've been getting very much, but maybe it'll clear by then. If not, we'll just move indoors and do some things here. Uh, you can then we'll have grill set up so we can grill outside. Everybody have a picnic lunch. We'll have games outside. And we will have this day in a pure festival that evening at sundown. So that pretty well lights it out. I look forward to that. The Jews did not work during that time. It's not holy time in that sense. Uh, it was a festival of joy, uh, purely and simply for God's deliverance. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles in one sense is that for the world, in that their deliverance from pain and suffering and war and everything uh, is something look forward to, and we celebrate it ahead of the time that it happens, don't we? It's a reminder to us that we need to be there to help make their lives better, because the Feast of Tabernacles isn't really all for us, it's for those who survived the Holocaust at the end of the age, and it is for us only in the sense that we are set aside, sanctified as leaders and rulers during that time, the bride of Christ, rulers of kings on the earth. So we can look forward to it, uh, just as, and we understand it, they don't. It'll happen to them before then. We will be there for them, too, to serve them and help them at that time. So we may not have been fully delivered yet, but our deliverance is on its way. I think it's here. And maybe we can celebrate the great joy before too long. All right, that's all I wanted to say about that. Uh, one other note, uh, Gordon and Jan Ellers were supposed to be back yesterday, but they had a transmission failure in, in Kansas on their way to Nebraska, so they got delayed and they're with family today uh, in Nebraska and Omaha, I think, with brethren there and hope to get back by Monday night. I don't know whether they'll make it or not, but mechanical things break down. These things do happen. I just hope they're able to make it back and uh, everything goes well on the trip back. I want to pick up 
where we left off two weeks ago in Jeremiah. Uh, we got down to chapter 44, verse 10. And you'll recall that most of the Jews went into captivity to Babylon when, when Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed. And then God warned those who stayed behind through Jeremiah not to go to Egypt. And if they went to Egypt, they would die there. So they said, we'll do anything the Lord says. And they packed up and went to Egypt. <laughs> it's almost funny, isn't it, to watch us over the years, throughout our history. And here we are today, and anything God says, we will rebel against it if there's any possible way, and we'll do something different. We are so obstinate, so stiff-necked, so hard-headed, so difficult, so weak, so carnal, so vain. And we always have been. But through conversion, that is supposed to change. We've been offered a new covenant with better promises and with help that we might overcome the carnal human frame and our evil deceitful hearts. God has given us an extra ingredient and not only that, he's given us a bigger carrot. He's given us opportunity to live life eternally in peace, happiness, and hope. Well, not hope anymore, I guess. Our hopes will have been fulfilled. Our dreams fulfilled. That he offers us. He said he would send the comforter and the strength, his power, his mind, his spirit to lead us, to guide us, to help us, to strengthen us. God is with us wherever we go. His mind, his spirit, his attitude is there for us to have. I read something yesterday that said the only difference between happiness and unhappiness is attitude. All people have problems. All people have difficulties. All people have weaknesses. All people have things they can be discouraged about. But some people are happy, even in their problems, and some people are unhappy. The only difference, really, is attitude. The way you look at, the way you react to, the mental frame of mind that you have regarding whatever cards you're holding at the moment. A good hand can be a bad hand. To be upset, frustrated, mad, angry, discouraged, resentful, or say, God said we would have many trials, troubles, difficulties, and afflictions, and I'll deal with them and be happy anyway. It's all a matter of that. That's all it is. Your life is not really any worse than anyone else's life for the most part terms of trials, troubles, tribulations that might come along time to time. Some people have some more severe ones at times with health or with wealth or with whatever might come along. But I have seen people without arms and legs who are happy people. I've seen people with cancer, terminal cancer, who were happy people. I have seen people with good health 
and most everything pretty much okay, at least by comparison to the paraplegic or the guy without any arms and legs. They were so miserable and unhappy, they could hardly walk the earth. The only difference is that you can have happiness or unhappiness depending on what you decide to think. All there is to it. Now, if you've been unhappy for a long time, it might be hard to change the attitude because it is so deep-seated. But that really is all it amounts to. Decide not to look at the things the way you've always looked at them. Will things be tomorrow better tomorrow or worse tomorrow? Maybe not. Might have the same trial. Why not just decide to have a good attitude about it? Be thankful for that which might try and test you and make you what you ought to be. There is great trial, trouble, difficulty coming on the world, just as it did on Israel. Why can't we simply take God's word, be happy to hear them, and do them? But we're perverted. Very difficult for us to do that. So we'll just go ahead, set our jaw sometimes, and maintain our attitude, which is an unhappy state. Israel did that. The end time church, to a great degree, has done that. There are a lot of people who are bitter, bitter, resentful, frustrated, and then bad attitudes toward each other, toward the ministry, toward God even. And then there are others who have, have gone through the same things, gone through the same things, and have maintained calm, peaceful, happy attitudes. It's let it affect them. Which category will we be in? Will we die, O Israel? Will we go back into Egypt and die there? God says, choose which way you'll go. And we are at a crossroads today. I do believe that. We're at a crossroads in the book of Jeremiah in the sense that it started out with recriminations against Israel and Judah because of their obstinacy and refusal to obey God. Then it shows them going into captivity, that it would be a 70-year captivity. And then toward the end of Jeremiah, we're drawing toward the end of that long captivity when those people would be released and Babylon would be destroyed. Babylon would be destroyed and then they would be released is the actual uh, order of things in the book of Daniel. I'm not going to go into that in detail at the moment. I will need to in just a few chapters get into that. And there are some things in Daniel that are, I think, coming much, much clearer We'll get there when we get there. Now, chapter 43, by quick review, Jeremiah made an end of all the speaking to the people. He had preached and preached and preached and preached, and he finished saying the words of God, and so that's the end of that, okay? Then he 
made one more discourse about the Jews in chapter 44, addressed all the Jews which dwell in the land of Egypt, all those who were still in sin, and what would happen to them if they continued in Egypt, and that would be that they would die. We stopped in chapter in verse 10, says, of the Jews, they are not humbled even to this day. Neither have they feared nor walked in my law nor in my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. We look at the world today and the Jewish people physically are in that category. And much of the church is in the same category. Denying the things that we have been taught and letting some of them pass away. All right, let's go to verse 11 then. Therefore, thus says the eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for evil, and to cut off all Judah. He's basically cut the Jews off from contact with him through divorce, and now he's essentially cut off spiritual Judah from himself by turning his face from the church and letting it fall apart causing it to fall apart because of it. Verse 12, And I will take the remnant of Judah that have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to sojourn there, and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall even be consumed by the sword and by the famine. They shall die from the least even to the greatest by the sword and by the famine, and they shall be an execration and an astonishment and a curse and a reproach. Now those people went physically into the country of Egypt, or the land of Egypt at that day. They physically died there. Jeremiah is an end-time prophecy, and I think it is a warning to the church. Now, how many church members are moving to Egypt? Does anyone here have plans of doing so? I see no plans. Certainly not mine. I wouldn't want to live in Egypt. How many Jews, physical Jews on earth, are planning on moving to Egypt? Very few, I suspect. So, this reference to Egypt, I think, would have to apply spiritually. That we would tend to go back to what we came from. Israel came out of Egypt, time of the Passover, and Egypt was listed as sin for them. And that sin is typified by us eating unleavened bread. So during that seven days, leavening is sin to us. Not another time, but during that time. And it typifies coming out of Egypt with sin in a hurry. Try to get out of it as quickly as possible and don't go back. So the message to us here, get away from the sinfulness of this world. Do not go back there but separate yourselves from it. And there was a major separation by crossing the Red Sea. God, by miracle, got them out of Egypt. And by miracle, he opened our eyes to see the truth and to begin the deliverance. Crossing the Red Sea is mentioned by Paul and Corinthians as a type of baptism. God begins our deliverance through repentance and baptism so that we can save from the fate of this world part of the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of Egypt forever. 
that's what this is all about. And it's a message to the end time church. Don't go to the world. Don't go to sin. And this whole world is sold under sin, isn't it? Going Satan's way, not going God's way. And he talks of Israel and Judah, Ezekiel 5, and many, many other places being punished by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. And here we are toward the end of the book of Jeremiah, when they've already been in captivity nearly 70 years, and God is talking about sword, famine, and pestilence. Now, basically, they were about to be released at the time this message was coming about. But we were at the end of 70 years of spiritual captivity to Egypt, and we are about to be released from that through the fall of Babylon. And if we do what is right, we will not suffer famine, pestilence, and disease that the rest of the world, particularly America, is about to suffer. Verse 14, So that none of the remnant of Judah, which are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there, shall escape or remain, that they should return to the land of Judah, to which they have a desire to return to dwell there. For none shall return, but such as shall escape. You might escape get back out of there. For the most part, they would die there. And for the most part, those in the church, apart from God, will die. Verse 15, Then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, and all the women that stood by, a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt, and Patmos answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Eternal, we will not hearken to you. Jeremiah comes from God to tell them the truth. They say, we're not going to But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goes forth out of our own mouth, to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven, and to pour out drink offerings to her, as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings, and our princes in the cities of Judah, and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then had we plenty of food, and were well, and saw no evil. Doesn't that pretty much, much sum up the American attitude today? We've been strong, we are still strong, we will do as we please, we have plenty of food, we have a wonderful land, our government will protect us, and no harm will be fallen. But since we left off to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her, we have wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. An attitude that sometimes we see in the church today, I was better off in the world. I was better off with my old friends. I was better off with my old lifestyle. I want to go back to the world. And a lot of people are going back to the world. They pine for it. They don't really want to come out of it. They want to save their highs, maybe. But they don't want to change. They don't want to be converted. They want to go ahead thinking the way they've been thinking and still be saved. That is mutually exclusive. Won't happen. Many people 
say it was worldwide, but I went back to the evangelical movement, which is pagan to the core, and part of the New World Order that is being ushered in. But they thought that things were better there, and they could have more peace and more grace, more happiness, and having to obey that old law, having to do what God said. Life was easier. Now, isn't life easier if you don't struggle against yourself? Isn't it easier just to relax and not fight wrong thoughts, wrong actions, wrong things? Sure, it's easier. But it leads to that. Broad and easy, smooth is the way to destruction. Difficult, hard, narrow, ruddy, steep. Stairway to life. Path to life. Sure, it's easier. Just say, grace, grace, I'm all forgiven, once saved, always saved. Don't have to produce a thing. Won't work. Verse 20, then Jeremiah said to all the people, to the men and to the women, and to all the people which had given him that answer, saying, the incense that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you, your fathers, your kings, your princes, the people of the land did not the eternal remember them, and came it not into his mind. Thank God forgets those things. So that the eternal could no longer bear because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you have committed. Worshiping the Queen of Heaven. Had him out keeping Easter. A lot of people in church have gone back keeping Easter. Easter Easter is a lot more fun. Passover. Yeah, people don't put it on a fun game. Easter, you could dress up and hide eggs and eat chocolate eggs. Have a nice meal on Sunday. Nobody chewed on you about your sins. You didn't have to be sober to realize that Jesus Christ was being beaten for your deliverance. You didn't have to put sin out of your life, which is atrociously difficult to do. Easter's a lot happier and easier. Eat hot cross buns. All those things. But God can't stand that. Those are the abominations which you've committed. You're going to suffer. Verse 23, because you've burned incense, because you've sinned against the eternal not obeyed the voice of the eternal, nor walked in his law, nor his statutes, nor his testimonies. Therefore, this evil has happened to you as at this day. So, there's cause for it. When this all comes down, God will have plenty of peace. Because you've earned incense. Because you have sinned against the eternal and have not obeyed. I read that. Verse 24, Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah that are in the land of Egypt. This is kind of interesting, isn't it? I hadn't really noticed it before, but he usually just addresses the men or the congregation. But here he makes it clear he's addressing the men and the women. He says it several times. Not just the men, but the women as well. Verse 
Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You and your wives have both spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have vowed to burn incense of heaven and the Father and offerings to her. Uh, yes, we will surely accomplish her vows, surely perform her vows. Maybe he dresses the way that's kind of going through a because in this generation, children have become, uh, well, women have become our oppressors. The children rule over We have abdicated the proper way of life, exactly the God ordained. Men have been weak, and women have taken over. And children, through their attitudes, their desires, and their approach actually rule the roost in most cases. They have the attitudes they want to have. They get their way. Fighting, crying, rebelling, joling, buttering up. They know how to work them. And learn. Men simply aren't the leaders. They ought to be. Maybe God and Rebellion are here to say, you know, you've all advocated. As far as leaders are concerned in our country today, and as far as the church is concerned, even though they might be men and women, they act like little children in attitude. So, even though they may be adults, their children rule over us. You take those people in Washington, D.C., who are mature and adults, the way they act in terms of politics, how they're Boiled brats. And that was true of the church and the ministry in it, the leadership of the church, sorry to say. That we have to get beyond. Verse 26 Therefore, hear you the word of the eternal, all Judah that dwell in the land of Egypt. Here we are with sin all around us. Have we come out of it or not? Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Eternal, but my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God lives. You don't want to worship me? You don't want to obey me? By the time I get done with you, you won't even be willing to talk to me. You won't champion the God of Israel. You will be so ashamed. So Deprived, so wilted. Behold, I will watch over them for evil and not for good. I'll make sure the evil comes. That's an awful thing to have God say about us, isn't it? I'll make sure the evil comes on you. It's no accident. I'll make sure it happens. And all the men of Judah that are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by the famine till there be an end of them. Yet a small number that escaped the sword shall return out of the land of Egypt into the land of Judah, and all the remnant of Judah that are gone into the land of Egypt, sojourn there, shall know whose word shall stand, mine or theirs. Some will repent. That is carried through in Zechariah, where it shows that approximately 30% of those who are in the church or were in the church will repent during the tribulation and return to God. But only about 10% will be saved out of it. Again, those who are willing to stay out of Egypt, not go back there, and not come under 
Assigned to you, says the Eternal, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my word shall surely stand against you because of your evil. Thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies, and into the hand of them that seek his life. Not just the Jews, not just the church, but God says the courts all over Egypt itself will be punished. Now, this obviously has to be in time. They will be punished. We'll see that. All right, chapter 45. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, Baruch means blessed, the word means that, son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book in the mouth of Jeremiah, for Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the eternal God of Israel to you, O Baruch. Baruch is we read before the fighting, as it says here, of the things that Jeremiah wrote, and then it got all torn apart, thrown in the fire, and he had to write it all down again. So Baruch was a very faithful friend and companion of Jeremiah, bride for Jeremiah. They had a very close relationship, and this is what God has to say to Baruch, as opposed to Jews around who were going into you did say, woe is me now. He saw what was happening. He read and written the things that Jeremiah said would happen to the Jews. So he was very well aware of God's pronouncements. So he said, you did say, woe is me now. God read his mind, his attitude. For the eternal has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. So Baruch, who was blessed to have that relationship with Jeremiah, who was himself essentially serving God, still and yet had his frustrations, his difficulties, and his confusion seeing what was going on. So God addressed him. He says, you shall say to him, or told Jeremiah to say to Baruch, the Lord says this, Behold, that which I have built will I break down. God did it with ancient Israel, killed it from Abraham upward, and then he broke it down, tore it apart. He built it for Jesus Christ, and it was broken down and fell apart within 70 years. And now he's built it up, and here at the end, and within 70 years, it has fallen apart, almost defunct. Scattered peoples still clinging, trying like after a great hurricane and flood, to cling to the bits and blossom and jetsam that has been left behind by the terrible ravaging that has occurred in the church. Difficult to keep our heads above water. God says, I build it up, I break it down. That which I have planted, I will pluck up. Even this whole land. And seek you great things for yourself. Now here's a lesson in attitude for Baruch. Some of the dictionary commentaries think, based on what is said about Baruch here and, and even this verse, that he may have been a wealthy man, may have had good standing in Israel or in Judah. 
But God says, don't seek great things for yourself. That's not what this is about. We're not at a time to seek materialism. We're in a country that thrives on materialism and consumerism and having a great life for ourselves. Bigger, bigger, bigger homes, fancier cars, more cars, more wealth, more money, more stocks, more bonds, more entertainment, more of everything that would seem good to human beings is what this land, this people, this nation is focused upon. God said, don't do that. In fact, he tells us in Matthew 29, 19, to leave lands and homes and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, our wealth, our families, in order to obey him. He even tells us when it's time to go to a place of safety, apart from just separating at this point from land and homes and families, not to go back for anything. Wherever you are, when the cry comes that the abomination and armies are gathering, you just leave. Don't take anything that isn't on you at that moment. I want you to go. I want you to be there. I think God is putting us through a trial exercise right now to see if we are willing under circumstances such as we have today that we are willing to give up whatever we need to give up to obey Him. And if we are willing to go that far, will we be willing to walk away from absolutely everything except what we have on our back? I can see some people walking around maybe with 90-pound packs on their back wanting to be sure they don't leave anything behind that's valuable to them. I don't know, I'm just joking. But we used to have our flea bags, you know. People had their bags packed in the car, ready to go. When the call came, they rushed to the airport, grabbed their bag out of the back of the, out of the trunk, and their flea bag would be full and ready. Maybe if we think it's getting close, we'll have a little flea bag. I don't know. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but I'd, I'd like to have my Bible along. Or maybe if I've read the whole thing, God will give me such a mind to remember it all in. I won't even need to read it. I could just recite it and remember it. Wouldn't that be nice? So that's what we have to look forward to. So he says, don't seek great things for yourself. Seek them not. For behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, says the Eternal. He's not yet done that. So is what? Well, this has to be an end-time prophecy about the time when he brings evil upon all flesh. So all these things that we cling to in a material society will mean nothing. And it's not just Americans. People all over the world want to be rich and wealthy and have the good life. That's why they resent and are so jealous of America, because they want the life they perceive that we have. So the whole world is seeking that. He said, don't do that. That's the wrong goal. Seek them not, for behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, says the Eternal, but your life will I give to you for a prey in all places where you go. I'll preserve your life. All you need. You don't need to take anything with you. God will take care of that. But we have to forsake 
the ways of this world and seek him so that he will be willing to do that. So it gives Baruch some hope and some comfort if he's willing to separate himself from everything that most people hold dear and pursue God and follow him. So let's go on then to chapter 46. The word of the eternal which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Gentiles. So now he's going to let us off the hook for a little while here and talk about the Gentiles. We need a little break now and then, don't we? Does it get heavy after a while? Man, oh man. So, now we'll talk about the Gentiles. And he mentions Egypt first. Now we know throughout the Bible, Egypt is a symbol or a type of sin or of all the Gentile peoples and nations or, to put it in a broader sense, anything that is contrary to God. Because sin is universal. Sin goes everywhere. And therefore, when he speaks against Egypt, he is speaking against sin anywhere in any society on the earth and even in us if we go to Egypt. So this is a pronouncement against the Gentiles. And now we're going to have a section here where he talks about various Gentile nations. And Egypt first. Against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Nechoking of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Mentions a specific Pharaoh who was at war. Uh, he wouldn't have been at the Euphrates just for vacation from Egypt. They have the Nile there. You can go down to the Nile and sit by the river if you want to do that. Didn't need to go to the Euphrates for that. It was war. It was dominance. It was power that was involved. And he was smitten there. So that is the opening salvo against Egypt. In other words, Egypt will be smitten. Order you the buckler and shield and draw near to battle. Might as well get your gear on, guys, because you're headed into trouble. Harness the horses. Get up, you horsemen, and stand forth with your helmets. Furbish the spears and put on the brigandines. <laughs> the reason God told Israel <clears throat> through history not to uh, <clears throat> increase horses was because they were war machines. Today, the equivalent would be don't make tanks and planes of war. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be trusting God. That's a big pill to swallow, isn't it? Wouldn't it be difficult to tell America today, somebody want to get on TV and tell the American government, the American people, from here on, we are going to trust God for our peace and for our safety. Therefore, we are going into total disarmament. We are going to destroy all of our warheads, all of our missiles, all of our planes, all our helicopters, all of our tanks, all of our guns, all of our submarines, all of our battleships, destroyers, and so on. We are going to sink them all into the sea. Now, how would America react to that? They think you are completely crazy. But that is exactly what God would have this nation do today. Completely disarm, 
trust him to take care of us. There's where faith comes in. And we have no faith as a nation in God. We trust in horses. We trust in battlements. We trust in the arm of our own strength. We tell Egypt, go ahead and gear up. Get ready. I'm coming after you. Wherefore have I seen them dismayed and turned away back? And their mighty ones are beaten down and are fled apace and look not back. Scared to death and running, won't even look back. For fear was round about, says the Eternal. Let not the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They shall stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. The battle coming up is going to be near the, battle of Euph- near the river of Euphrates, which is in the area of Iraq, Iran. Who is this that comes up as a flood, whose waters are moved as the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood, and his waters are moved like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and will cover the earth. I will destroy the city and the inhabitants thereof. Now, I do not hear the nation of Egypt today making that kind of pronouncement. They're basically a fourth world if they go down that far. That is not a powerful nation by any means, speaking of physical Egypt. But the system that is in this world, the sinful system of Satan, does say we will take over the world. We will rule the whole world. We will have one world government. That's what sin is saying. That's what Satan is saying. That's what he's saying through the mouths of the politicians and leaders of his world. Rise up like a flood, like an army. We're going to rule everything. Cover the earth. Does that sound like a one-world or a two-world or a three-world government? Sounds like covering the earth means we're going to have it all. Isn't that Satan's idea? That's what he tried to offer Christ. I'll give it all to you. You'll just obey me. Of course, if he'd have been obeying Satan, then since Satan is the ruler of the world... He would have come under Satan as well. So it's all been over. He wasn't willing to do that. And he isn't today. He's already qualified to rule the world. And he's going to set his hand very soon to show the Egyptians the sinful world, Satan's way. They're not going to make it. Will not prevail. They will think they have. But God throws the challenge. Come up, you horses. And rage, you chariots, and all your tanks and your warships together. Let the mighty men come forth, men of war, the Ethiopians and the Libyans that handle the shield, and the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. Those are not important nations today, but they're part of the world system. When? Verse 10 gives it to you. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts. This is an end-time prophecy, the day of the Lord. It doesn't have anything to do with way back then. Yes, it had an application then. This is a day prophecy. This is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. Too many scriptures show us that God will wreak his vengeance at the end, not before. So every bit of this is for today. 
the sword shall devour, and it shall be, it be satiate, and they drunk with their blood. For the eternal God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Now he's addressing Egypt and Libya and Ethiopia, but he says this is going to take place around the river Euphrates. There's a major conflict shaping up down there. <coughs> Go up into Gilead. Take Baal, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. You think you're so great? In vain shall you use many medicines, or you shall not be cured. There is no cure when God takes a hand to punish this world. Now, not many, not many people believe this. You know that? The whole world will worship the beast. The sinful system, the system from Egypt, from Semiramis, from Nimrod, paganism that goes all the way back to the beginnings of society. Verse 12, the nations have heard of your shame, and your cry has filled the land, for the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty, and they are fallen both together. World war, people fighting one against another. And they're all going to fall. Verse 13, now which side do you want to be on? The few, the mighty, the chosen, powerful through God? Or do you want to lean with the rulers, the war machines of this world? Okay, verse 14. Declare you in Egypt and publish in Migdal and publish in Nop and in Toponese. Say you, stand fast, prepare you, for the sword shall devour round about. Go to the different parts of Egypt, which represents the world of sin, and tell them you got a battle coming. Why are your valiant men swept away? They stood not because the eternal did drive them. He made many to fall. Yes, one fell upon another. And they said, Arise, and let us go again to our own people and to the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. The book of Revelation says people are going to go to battles, and then they're going to cry for the rocks to fall on them. Life is going to be so miserable and so difficult. They did cry there. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He is past the time appointed. So all the noise that this world can make and its governments, new world order, is just so much noise. Won't mean a thing. Oh, you daughter dwelling in Egypt, furnish yourself to go into captivity. Might as well just prepare yourself. If you're going to live the way this world lives, if you're going to impart of its ways, if you're going to be a friend of this world, if you're going to fellowship with this world, you're going to be a part of it in any way. God says, prepare yourself to go into captivity. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot do both. You cannot sit on the fence. You can go God's way or the world's way. So he's just telling them, you're going the way of sin, going the way of this world. Prepare yourself to go into captivity. For Nob shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. Egypt is like a very fair heifer. <laughs> the destruction comes. It comes out of the north. What do you mean Egypt is looking like a very fair heifer? Well, sin looks pretty good. 
to us in this world, based on human nature and human desires, sin looks good. And the Bible even says through Paul that there are temporary pleasures in sin. Now, I don't know whether you ever noticed it or not, but, but I have noticed through my lifetime that sin can be fun. Sin can be fun. But it also is a temporary pleasure that ends in death and destruction because it is not the way to live. Remember when you were young and you were being introduced by friends, neighbors, peers to the joys of drunkenness, to the joys of getting high, to the joys of thievery, to the joys of racing at breakneck speed, risking killing people, which is basically murder if you're doing it that way. Remember those who would introduce you to illicit sex, wrong way of living? Seemed like fun, sounded like fun, could be fun. Sin can be fun. But Moses went up on the mountain, Israel looked around and said, let's have fun. Out came, out came the bottles, off came the clothes, and they had fun. Moses came back, fun stopped. Human nature revels in fun. This world revels in instant entertainment, instant gratification, and fun. We are called upon to deny ourselves. But... The world has not denied itself. So when God addresses Egypt, sin, the world, he just says, brace yourself, I'm coming after you. There's not any, even any call to repentance here. That Egypt is like a very fair heifer. You know, a nice young heifer looks appealing. Uh, you cut stakes off the rear end and off the backbone and it'd be very good. And sin can look like it's worth eating. But destruction comes. It comes out of the north. So the destruction will come from the north. Egypt was up the river Euphrates. The kingdoms of the north were always geographically north of the promised land of Israel today. That's usually where trouble came from sometimes from Egypt from the south, but generally from the north. So destruction for Israel is going to come from the north today. We can see many scriptures. There are people today who think that the Islamic movement is going to destroy America. No, it is not. It will be involved to some degree, which we shall see, but the destruction is coming from the north, not the south. Scripture is very, very plain on that. destruction of Egypt and those Arabic countries will come from the north as well when it comes. Verse 21, or from the east, we'll get into more prophecies a little later on, especially in Daniel and even in the end of this book. 
Also her hired men are in the midst of her like batted bullocks, for they also are turned back and are fled away together. They did not stand because the day of their calamity was come upon them and the time of their visitation. The voice thereof shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes as hewers of wood. This world system is going to go down just like you would chop down a tree with an axe. They shall cut down her forest, says the Eternal. Not just a tree, but the whole forest is going to get cut down. Though it cannot be searched, because they are more than the grasshoppers and are innumerable. The armies are going to come and come and come. The daughter of Egypt shall be confounded. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will punish the multitude of No and Pharaoh in Egypt with their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh and all them that trust in him. Now America is also going to be destroyed by the king of the north. And I think right now in symbolism we are the king of the north. That will change and we'll have a different king ruling the north. But the beast, the beast power, is going to be centered in terms of government leadership from the north, not from the south. Verse 26, I will deliver them into the land, hand of those that seek their lives into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. There is an end time Nebuchadnezzar. The book of Daniel is all about the end time, not about past history. We'll get there. And to the hand of his servants, and afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Eternal. But fear not you, O my serpent, second serpent Jacob, my servant Jacob, sorry about that. And be not dismayed, O Israel. So even in this warning against Egypt coming down, don't be dismayed, O Jacob. Now, we will have a time of Jacob's trouble too. And most of Jacob is going to go into captivity. Maybe he's referring here more to those who turn and do obey God. The rest of Jacob had best fear. Those who will listen to God, he says, don't be dismayed. For behold, I will save you from far off and your seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and be in rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. So out of the destruction at the end of the age, God is going to make sure that Jacob survives. Israel will not be wiped out. Even this country will not be totally wiped out. 10% will be saved physically, 10% of the church will be saved spiritually, and even in tribulation, more will repent. So fear not, Jacob, my servant, says the Eternal, for I am with you, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you. You will go into captivity, and then Times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled, and they will get theirs. God has always been upset with those who would do anything nasty to Israel. Always has been. Now, there's a tool of his destruction and his anger at times, but he is just using their own venom and their own evil nature to punish his people for disobedience to him, but then they get punished because of what they do to Israel. I will not make a full end of you, but correct you in measure. Yet will I not leave you wholly unpunished. We will be punished. 
but we will not be totally wiped out. Some will be saved. The question is, who will be saved? Let's go on through 47 then. The word of the Eternal that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before that Pharaoh smote Gaza. Now who were the Philistines? They were a traditional enemy of Israel. I believe God even told Israel to wipe the Philistines out at one point. But they were the cities that were on the coast on what is now in Israel, but along the coast, coastal cities. The word Philistine means Palestine. Basically the same word, Philistine or Palestine. They dwelt there in the land of Palestine or what is today the land of Israel before Israel ever got there. They were there in the days of Abraham. And when Israel came into the land, they were to take the land of the Philistines and they had been told to push all the Gentiles out and let them remain. Well, they didn't do that. And the Philistines were a constant thorn in the flesh. Now, who are the Philistines today? That is a question that I think is needs to be perhaps discussed. And I don't know that it can be totally identified. Uh, I read various historians and scholars about this. Most think that they were Semitic people uh, into or came through uh, Shem, as opposed to Japheth or Ham. There's not total concurrence on that, however, based on research. Some people even contradict the Bible in trying to say who they were, and I don't buy that at all. Uh, some say they were brown with black hair. Some of the characteristics were that they worshipped Dagon, the fish god. Uh, So-called Christians today, you'll see on the backs of their cars, Dagon, the fish god. I suppose they mean that as something to do with Christ and the miracle of the fishes. didn't come from there at all. It goes all the way back to worshiping Dagon. Mermaids, the same, uh, came from the same place. We have mermaids in our movies, and it's supposedly an innocent thing with Disney. No, it's an ancient god, pagan god, half woman, half fish. They worshipped Dagon. They worshipped Ashtaroth. In other words, they were total pagans. They did not know God. And Israel was not to have concourse with them. But what did they do? They went over and married Philistine women. They mixed with them. They mingled their seed with people God had told them not to do so with. Just as today, we are told not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers. We are not to have fellowship and social life with unbelievers. We are not to link ourselves with this world and have fellowship with this world. We are to come out of her, my people, and be not partakers of her sins. You cannot worship God and this world. I think God is trying to make that very clear in these chapters. You'll either go the way of the world and sin, or you'll worship the eternal God. You'll be die with Egypt, or you'll live with God. You cannot have it both ways. 
Those principles are the reason that the church has always maintained we should not date outside the church, we should not marry outside the church, we should not be business partners with anyone outside the church, because they go one way and we go another way. I had a partner that I thought was in the church in a business in Nevada and Arizona some years back. But he was going the way of worldwide. He wasn't continually in the ways of God. He betrayed me. And he betrayed God. And every time I would go back to Alaska from Nevada or Arizona, the doors would open on the Sabbath. The salesman would come back in. I'd come back from Alaska. I'd run the salesman off and shut the doors on the Sabbath. The salesman kind of got confused, frustrated. They wanted to be there selling on Saturday. It's a big day to sell homes, mobile homes, land, what we were doing. They wanted to be there selling on the big day Saturday. They got where they didn't want to see me come back from Alaska. And they knew I'd shut the doors. The point of making, it was very frustrating and confusing. Because we were, we got to the place we were kind of at war. He didn't like me coming down, shutting it down. Now he kept the Sabbath himself and went to Las Vegas to Worldwide Church. As long as I don't work, it's okay. Well, what does the Sabbath command say? Your maid servants, your manservants, your family, everybody. Nobody works. But he thought as long as he didn't, it was okay. I was unequally yoked there. First good exit line chance I got, I departed. Let's get along. He was a nice guy. We don't need to run him down. He's a nice guy, but he was departing from the ways of God. How many people have I known in the past 50 plus years who have been married to somebody outside the church? And the misery and the frustration and the difficulties with keeping the Sabbath, with tithing, with going to the feast, with all the various aspects of life. How will we raise the kids becomes one of the biggest questions. Will we raise them God's way or the world's way? And if you've got the parents fighting over it, the kids win in terms of getting their way. And their way is generally the worldly way. Not always, but generally. Why? need that kind of conflict in our lives. We don't. That's what God is telling us here. And when they intermarried and had concourse with the Philistines, God was upset. The Philistines, in other words, were drawing people away from God. Philistines then became, through David's life and Solomon's, a bitter enemy. Remember Goliath and David? And Israel, through David, had to triumph over the Philistines. So I don't know that we can define today, because the scholars are all confused about it, just who today might be the descendants of these original Philistines. There are perhaps some clues, and I don't want to be definitive about it because I don't really know, but consider that those people lived along the seacoast. That was the land of Philistia, was the seacoast of Israel. Ashkelon, Gaza, through those cities that still remain today, some of them, where they lived. 
so they were on the coastal plain. Now, let me ask you today, where do we import paganism in this country? Along the seacoast, on the borders. That's where they come in. Traditionally, by ship, by plane now some, and some just walk across the border or come from Cuba on anything that floats. But they come basically to the borders, the coastlines. So it may be that some of those who are overrunning this nation today are of that group of people because they are amalgamating with us. They're bringing different languages. They're bringing different customs. They're bringing paganism in and drawing us further and further away from God. Of course, we export plenty of paganism ourselves at this point, but they are flooding into this country from every direction. And in that sense, maybe they're a type of the original Philistines. God tells us, don't intermix with them, but we allow them to come in. Our government's open the gates. <laughs> the other day said that rather than building a fence between us and Mexico to stop them coming through, we have decided to set up cameras to take their pictures as they come through. Now, that's going to be a big deterrent, isn't it? Hi, you're on camera. Bye. The government doesn't want to slow them down. Some of the scholars did say they were brown with black hair. It makes me wonder if those who are on our border to the south might have some of them, at least, their roots in Philistine heritage. I don't know that. It's just a question mark that came to mind if that is indeed true. They were mixed, or, or they are categorized with Phoenicians by some scholars. I believe some Phoenicians were Israelites who uh, traveled about the world, but they were over toward the north coast of Africa and up into Spain, and some of the Spanish heritage might possibly be Philistine as well, and that heritage was transferred to where? Mexico, Central America. So I don't know. That's just a, a thought to ponder. Uh, they certainly are bringing their paganism and their customs into our country today, and we are accepting it. They're false gods. They, too, worship Ashtaroth and Semiramis and Nimrod. They got the fish god. So I don't know. That's a possibility. Where was I here with this? This is a prophecy against the Philistines. Verse 2, thus says the eternal, behold, waters rise up out of the north, waters representing people, and shall be an overflowing flood, and shall overflow the land, and all that is therein, the city and them that dwell therein, then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall howl. So this is speaking of the Philistine land, wherever that might be, and it too is an end time prophecy. On the day of the Lord. So it's not just anciently. At the noise of the stamping of the hooves of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, and at the rumbling of his wheels, the fathers shall not look back to their children for feebleness of hands. They will just give up weak, tired, can't fight anymore because of the wars that are going to come and drain all energy and all strength out of people. Because of the day that comes to spoil all the Philistines. And to cut off from Tyrus and Zidon, every helper that remains. Tyre was on the seacoast of Israel as well, further north. 
for the Eternal will spoil the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaphtor. Baldness has come upon Gaza, and Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long will you cut yourself? O you sword of the Eternal, how long will it be before you be quiet? Put up yourself into your scabbard. Rest and be still. <laughs> These people are going to be so decimated. I wonder when will God let up? At some point, I suppose they're going to have to recognize that this is coming from a power stronger than they are. How can it be quiet, seeing the Eternal has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? There has he appointed it. I says, I'm going to destroy these people. He said, send the sword out, so the sword's going to go out. So there is to it. So Egypt represents sin and the world of sin, this whole earth. And perhaps Philistine as a traditional, or the Philistines as a traditional enemy of Israel might be a broader term indicating different Gentile nations that are against Israel. Maybe it's more specific in terms of who these people specifically are and how their culture also is going to be destroyed. I would think that maybe it has a, a broad terminology in terms of is the enemies of Israel, but also perhaps specific. And if it is the brown, dark-haired people from Mexico, uh, this could be a pronouncement against Mexico and Central America, perhaps someone in South America, I don't know. Well, I think that's probably enough today. This is 